Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Ryan Merkley. Hello. Currently the chief of staff at Wikimedia, formerly the CEO of Creative Commons. Welcome to Candleland Shortcuts. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Today we are going to talk, Ryan, uh, about the CBC. They have sued the Conservative Party of Canada for copying them. They apparently have a trademark on stupidity. (laughs) Also, Toronto's library boycott. Sure, why not? Let's boycott libraries now. Uh, Good to have you here. Good to be here in these, uh, you know, challenging times. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Francois-Dominique Laramé, Joel Hart, Julia Dufour, Duncan Bell, Amelia Philpot, Brian Laframboise, Candice So, Ali Kadir, and Isaac Gilbert. Hello, my name is Isaac Gilbert. I am a BC park ranger and improviser out of Penticton, British Columbia. Uh, I support CanadaLand because I love their investigative journalism and the information that they provide. Uh, I really love Archie Mann's show, Commons. I really like how Jen Gertson and Justin Ling bounce off each other to bring politics in a very funny and informative way. And I love Jesse Brown's criticism of the media and also to his respectful nature, even though he sometimes does like to really push the button. Oh, and one more thing, Ryan, I have to tell everybody, uh, for those out there, you might be one of them who are into politics, but, you know, not so into politics that you have, like, election night plans. 
Uh, here are your election night plans. Come hang out with us if you live in Toronto. Nice. Canada Land is uh, once again renting out the Monarch Tavern in Toronto's Little Italy so that you do not have to watch the results alone. Um, you can watch me deliver terrible hot takes in real time. Who wrote this? Watch Jesse deliver terrible hot takes in real time or turn the tables and deliver your terrible hot takes to Jesse, who will surely appreciate each and every one of your theories. As a matter of fact, I will. The whole Canada Line team will be at the Monarch on election night. We're looking forward to hanging out and drinking with you, whatever the outcome. 7.30 p.m. at the Monarch in Little Italy, Toronto is when we'll be there. This is a free event. We just want to hang out with uh, with some people while this goes down. Uh, polls close at 9.30. For God's sakes, go vote before you come hang out with us at the Monarch on election night this Monday, the 21st. All right, Ryan. So I think we got to just play uh, a little bit of this clip for the people. Uh, this is... The there are a bunch of different materials that the CBC has has sued the Conservative Party for seven clips, some some things they put to Twitter, uh, clips of the debate, which was a consortium of broadcasters. But this is the main ad. This is the conservative ad that had had Rosie Barton and John Paul Tasker, the CBC journalists who are also named in the lawsuit. Let's roll that. What's the difference between running with a record now and running in 2015? Well, what I can say now is look at what we've done. The Prime Minister broke the law in four different places, and that's just talking about the Conflict of Interest Act. Why are we still uh, fighting against certain uh, veterans groups? Because uh, they're asking for more than we are able to give right now. The fact is, we work... Uh, the. We're just trying to reorder, reorder the thoughts. My question is, why does it have to be done with taxpayer dollars? Why do we have to fork out $12 million to help law laws? Gerald Butts and Katie Telford had in total received over $200,000 in moving expenses. What I can say now is, look at what we've done. Rosie doesn't actually speak, so it's really just like her face in the, in the video. That is correct. Uh, in this instance. In, in the audio version of this will be very confusing as to why Rosie Barton. <laughs> Where's Rosie? Rosie Barton suing the Conservative Party of Canada because yes. you, because like what basically what you would see if you're watching this clip is, uh, as you heard, this was a mashup, you know, here's some terrible things about Justin Trudeau, and then it's just a news mashup, the kind that we make on this show all the time mm -hmm. when we're trying to just reflect, here's what's in the media these days. Right. And we'll play you clips from across the media. That's what the conservatives did. They didn't just use CBC footage. They used a bunch of footage that, you know, obviously was cherry picked to make Trudeau look bad. And one of those clips is of Andrew Coyne uh, saying critical things. But the screen is, is split in three. And for four seconds, Rosemary Barton, one of the many anchors of the national is is there listening while Andrew Coyne says these things. And as a result of that, the CBC uh, launched a lawsuit. Uh, and and Rosemary Barton and John Paul Tasker launched. I mean, we can. We, there's They're a named. question as to. Yeah. They are, as we speak, they are suing the Conservative Party of Canada, though their names are going to be taken off of that lawsuit, for violating CBC copyright and violating the moral rights. Mm -hmm. of a heavy Rosemary term. Can, okay, so I think that there's uh, probably not a high degree of familiarity with what moral rights are in copyright and. Um, Copyright as as in your role at Creative Commons, in your role at Wikimedia, this is something that you you know quite a bit about. What are moral rights? So copyright is your exclusive right to exploit a work for a period of time. And embedded inside copyright, uh, there are sort of subsidiary rights. And one of those is the very obscure moral rights. And it's really your right to 
uh, protect the integrity of the work and to not have your name associated in an inappropriate way with that work's use. You may have the right to have my sculpture in your space, but you do not have the right to distort my work of art. Now, that That's is right. You easy. can't put a funny hat on my sculpture. That's easy to understand in the context of an artist and their relationship licensing their work. I guess the corollary here is the CBC is saying that this clip, this clip of Rosemary Barton listening to Andrew Coyne is a is a, a a copyrighted work. It's not like in the ad they say, and here's Rosemary Barton who supports the Conservative Party of Canada, but just by virtue of it appearing in the context of a Conservative Party ad, well, here, they've been explicit of this. Uh, Catherine Tate just released a statement saying, using our content and footage of our journalists out of context risks creating the impression that CBC supports the message of the advertising. This can undermine the public's trust. We can't have the public losing trust in us and thinking that we are taking sides in this election. So let's sue the Conservative <laughs> Party of Canada right before people head to the polls. This leads us to the other obscure part of copyright, which is exceptions and limitations. And you would have heard folks talk about fair use, which is not a thing we have in Canada, but fair dealing, which is a very similar thing. It's essentially the right to use a work in certain ways even though that work may be copyrighted without asking permission. And the idea that you could take an excerpt in, let's say, contemporaneous news reporting of a thing that is copyrighted in order to tell the news is a right that broadcasters use all day long. So the idea that the CBC doesn't quite get what fair dealing is or that that's a right, considering that your average daily news broadcast has fair is leaning on fair dealing every day, Seems a bit shocking to me. Um, so there's there's sort of two issues here for me. There's the first one is, is there a copyright issue here? Like, does the CBC have a case of violated copyright? And then there's the second issue, which is perhaps more entertaining, which is, who thought it was a good idea 11 days before the election to sue the Conservative Party under the name of a couple of your journalists? And then the subsidiary question, why did they leave out Rex Murphy? Yeah, not 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 considered a journalist, no longer a CBC employee. I, is he a freelancing for anything? I don't, I don't know, even know these days. Like, he, he don't just, they care about his reputation too? Well, he just launched his YouTube channel, and I guess. Uh, Andrew Coyne's not in there. I, okay, last things first. Mm -hmm. um, the public who know and perhaps care little about these these vagaries of copyright simply see this as like, look, you have literally literally put yourselves in an adversarial position against the Conservative Party of Canada. And not only have you, the CBC, done this to all those who think that the CBC is hopelessly in the tank with the Liberals, they're a bunch of Justin journos, they're paid by Justin Trudeau, he, he, he restored their funding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is a, a, a bias a lot of people have against the CBC. Not only did the CBC confirm that bias by actually making themselves the adversary of the Conservative Party, but Rosemary Barton, their, their, their most prominent anchor, is now an adversary of the Conservative Party of Canada. And I think that people can be forgiven to some extent for saying, this proves what we always thought. You're against Andrew Scheer, you're against the Conservatives. I don't think that's the case. I don't no. think that, that this is proof of that at all. And I think that, that what, what you and I know is that the CBC has taken a hostile, aggressive, maximalist posture in protecting their intellectual property mm -hmm. for years and years. And they warned all of the parties. They, they previously sued the Broadbent Institute, uh, NDP-affiliated think tank, for similar things in 2015. They told all the parties, if anyone uses our footage, we're coming after you. And they are so serious about that. They're, they're as serious about protecting their intellectual copyright as they are uh, negligent 
about their role as a public broadcaster who are providing materials for us to have political conversations with, you know, and, and as yeah. negligent as they are in protecting the journalistic credibility of, of Rosemary Barton, who has been, I'll tell you this, since I wrote about this, my feed has been filled with so much angry abuse of vitriol against Rosemary Barton, attacking mm. her not only as a perceived liberal flack and shill, but you know, in the most misogynistic and, and, and personal terms possible. So I think like, I, you know, one thing we could do here is just try to put to rest, like if this was, if, if, you're, if you're thinking that this was CBC and Rosemary Barton trying to help Justin Trudeau, this did not help. Nobody could have conceived that this would have helped Justin Trudeau. The clip in question has gone Barbara Streisand viral. Mm -hmm. it, 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 the, the conservative ad has gotten all kinds of free, you know, like a million views out of this. And it's a terrible look for the CBC. It doesn't help Trudeau at all. It helps Sheer. They've been, you know, they've been politicking and campaigning on the basis of this story. So there's no universe in which this was like, let's get Andrew Sheer by launching this lawsuit. Yeah, I mean, if it was, it was the worst version of that strategy you could have conceived. Like it is and completely blown up in their own hands but forget the copyright question at the other end of it which you know we should talk about yeah but this was a bad idea to to raise this there were so many steps between file lawsuit and do nothing that could have been explored and and i, I recognize that from tate's letter she says you know we we wrote them a letter what about a public statement what if if the cbc was so concerned that its journalists were being associated with this ad, which for what it's worth, no one thought that was the case because we see this stuff all day long and because there were 20 other media outlets or whatever, num any number of media outlets in the clip. If they were so concerned, why not just put out a statement and said, well, we respect the value of public discourse. It, it we, we would hate for Canadians to be confused about the independence of the CBC in this. These clips were used under the laws that allow fair dealing, something we rely on every day to report the news. We are not associated with these clips or this debate, and nor do we endorse the position of any party. Love, that, Catherine Tate. Well, like, you know. That would have been better than doing the worst thing possible. I don't think that was necessary because, again, I don't think anybody thought this was an endorsement in any way. If they had said the conservatives have the best platform for Canada and the CBC agrees and then had clipped together a bunch of CBC reporters speaking in ways that Suggest. you know, suggested yeah. that they endorsed the conservative party— Lawsuits aplenty. Knock yourselves out. And, and everybody would be sitting here talking about how dumb the conservatives were for doing that. Before we even get into whether or not they have a fair dealing uh, defense, which mm -hmm. they do, mm -hmm. the conservative party, um, yeah. Michael Geist and others, uh, Howard Knopf, have done a, 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 an analysis of this from an intellectual property standpoint and said, look, one of the things is the size of the clip that you're using. Mm -hmm. And this is defensible by that. They're not using a significant enough portion of this news footage for, for the, they don't even have to rely on fair dealing, uh, Howard Knopf wrote, uh, because mm -hmm. uh, you know, this would just uh, be laughed out of court. I think all the minds who know anything about this say like this, you do, you do not have a copyright argument against the, the conservative party for this. Mm -hmm. Do they have some other kind of an argument? Karen Puglesi, um, former news director at APTN, she wrote, well, you know, I don't like political parties using news clips. She said on Twitter, they are purposely out of context and warp the purpose of news. They should be forced to follow terms of use, which broadcasters insist on when they sell footage. But I also think, I mean, let's be clear. Every interview is a clip. If I'm writing a New York Times article, I'm going to talk to the uh, subjects for maybe an hour or maybe half an hour or maybe 10 minutes. But I might only use a sentence. Everything is a clip. And you hope that the person uses it fairly and reasonably. That's the basis of how every media outlet has to work, and their integrity depends on them doing that in a way that, you know, over time, uh, people see that they do so honestly. I get that there's a difference when it's political versus not political, 
But the exceptions and limitations component here covers that. The idea that this this element of copyright that says that you're allowed to use excerpts in these ways without permission. Now, the moral rights piece is important because it's meant to protect against the implication of endorsement from the the people who are there. And so I think there's a bit of a like too clever by half of putting Rosemary Barton on the complaint in order to pull the moral rights card. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a pretty big leap to do it, especially when the clip they use, she doesn't even open her mouth. I mean, in this environment where there's no shortage of political propaganda that does warp the meaning of source material, that does take things out of context, Mm -hmm. this couldn't be a worse example from the CBC's point of view because arguably the conservatives were acting in very good faith. Like we should be making uh, political arguments on the basis of debate footage Mm -hmm. that, you know, they didn't put a filter on it. They didn't like, you know, yes, they chose bits that would that would uh, affirm their point of view. Right. But that's how we have political conversations. Political speech is speech and paid political speech is part of free expression as well. Like, you know, it's people always want to say like, well, you know, sure, sure, free expression. But this is something else. This is partisan or this is paid. Well, that that we have a political conversation. We decide who to vote on. You know, like we should be using news footage and things people said in parliament and things people said in debates to create political arguments to influence people. That's how, that, yeah. that's sort of like the best case scenario of how we actually have a political conversation. Right. Well, and I, and I don't want to I don't want to miss the part that, you know, the conservative ad here is heavily cut to pieces, right? Like so let's be let's be fair at it's least on that point. Sure. Now, I don't know what's missing and and certainly they've selected some poor moments like that town hall footage is like, "Oh, so a guy who gives, you know, 8 hours of speeches a day flubbed a, a bit of the conversation, sure. And so, but I, I think also any average Canadian sees that and says, "Okay, they're presenting the prime minister in a poor light." I, I get that. Canadians are smart enough to see that that was part of the play. The question is, like in this case, is like, did they violate the CBC's copyright, and did they violate their journalists' moral rights? Yeah. I mean. I am not a lawyer, and I lean pretty heavily on the really, really good work that Michael Geist has done on this, but I cannot for the life of me see how there was a legit case behind this, unless their whole strategic play was drop lawsuit on conservatives, get ad taken down. And if that was their play, well, then I guess they were successful, but at what strategic cost? There is a question here of journalistic judgment, if in fact she knew her name was going to be added to that. To let yourself be a plaintiff... Uh, J.P. Tasker as well, when you're tr- when you're struggling to maintain perceptions of your neutrality. So the question, did you know that they were adding your name to this, is, uh, I-, I think, a fair uh, a fair one that she needs to answer. She has told me she's not going to be answering that question. Oh, it's such a tough spot to be in. It's though. terrible, because like, if she be, knew... Well, now you have to call out your employer for a thing they either did or didn't do. And well, like, if they so, didn't uh, tell her... If, I mean, like, neither option is good. If they If they put her on a lawsuit and she didn't know about it, like lawyers could could lose their job like that. That is a very serious ethical breach. Um, Absolutely. And she's the face of this stupid move. She's taken the hit. J.P. Tasker as well, but mostly Rosemary Barton. She mm-hmm. would have a huge uh, argument against her employer. The damages. I mean, I don't know. Like, there's a collective agreement she'd have to work with, but there may even be some way she could sue them. But, they, but they, like, that, right. that, she doesn't want to be in that position in this scenario where she didn't know she was being named on that. Mm-hmm. And in the in the scenario where she did know, I, I'm sorry to say it, but it, if she knew that her name was going to be in this lawsuit, that does raise questions as to whether or not she can continue to cover the Conservative Party of Canada, 
which all, which makes it hard for her to do her job as the anchor, as an, an anchor of the national. It would seem just playing the strategic angles that it would be smarter for the CBC for someone to just jump on the grenade and say, Rosemary didn't know. It was my mistake. We did it. Well, that's why I kind of feel like she did know, because if, in fact, somebody had acted so egregiously, wouldn't that be the easiest thing in the world for a journalist to say, oh, yeah, if somebody added my name to a lawsuit without my knowledge, like, I'm going to say that. I'm not, I'm not protecting anyone. Like, if, if, if it's my reputation that's going down, I'm not keeping quiet about that. I didn't know. It's the truth. We're supposed to tell the truth. My suspicion is we'll never know. The last thing I want to say about this, for many years in this conversation... That used to be called the copy left. I don't know if people say that anymore. From time to time. But no, that's um, it's a pretty obscure term. As a, as a former public broadcaster myself who used to cover copyright and digital policy, the idea that a public broadcaster should be on the other side of this, opening up their works mm-hmm. for people to mash up, take out of context if they want, uh, use for whatever purpose, uh, as long as there's attribution, yeah. their role is not to... to delicately control every meaning and possible use their 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 role in the commons and this public space with mm-hmm. their with their taxpayer funded news outfit is to create materials and resources in a public record yep. uh, that we can all use and uh, Michael Geist has been arguing for that for many years they they have you know consistently gone on the other side of this the the shattered mirror report submitted mm-hmm. to government said CBC should be making all their news footage available under a creative commons license the organization that you used to run yep. do you have anything you want to say about but like, it feels like they just could not be more closed. I've never even heard them entertain these arguments that a lot of people have been making for years and years. Yeah. I, I think scarcity makes people uh, make unfortunate choices. I think the this idea that that we need to maximize the value out of every single thing that we produce puts organizations in the place where they make bad choices. Uh, And it it makes me sad to see uh, a news organization that lives and dies on fair dealing all day long use it as a weapon against other folks. Now, whether or not, you know, they they wanted to be in the middle of a political mess, that's too bad that they chose to do that. They probably all regret it today. I think nobody, they they don't want this news cycle to keep going on, but still it's dogging them and it's becoming a story in the election. The thing that I would like to see is the idea that things that we produce together, things that we fund together become assets for all of us. The idea that they enter into a public commons. And there's been lots of good conversation that if, uh, and suggestions that if we are the funders of a public broadcaster, that the assets created under that should accrue to all of us and that we should be able to take those and make new things out of them, but also that they could go beyond their intended original use, that the works of the CBC could then become educational resources used Mm -hmm. in classrooms, that the works that they publish in one language could easily be translated by others without asking permission, because translation is a form of making a derivative work. They could be translating those works into other languages so that they could reach new Canadians or underserved communities in their own language. That's an amazing way for uh, a small investment to go so much further. And it's so short-sighted to say, no, no, I'm going to beat you over the head with the copyright stick, instead of saying, how could we serve our public interest mandate, which is to make things that serve all Canadians, including well beyond the work we did, and let our things become the first of like the next set of things? I mean, you and I could probably go on yeah. uh, for a long time. I, I once thought like they need to just like dump all of their archives online and let the public sort through them and tag them. And, and like, there's, all, there's all kinds of wonderful public participation cooperations. But this oh, yeah. was like a fairly niche interest. It's so ironic 
to see this niche issue to, to, that some of us have been passionate about, about, about public broadcasters and public, uh, public licenses become not just an election issue, but like they have just handed a possible Andrew Scheer administration a hammer with which to beat them to death. I mean, this, hmm. if, if Scheer, he said in the past he wants to uh, gut, basically destroy CBC as a news organization, defund. Uh, he, he walked that back. But at one point he said he wanted to defund CBC News. The idea that they are a hopelessly biased institution would be the rhetorical means <laughs> to doing so. And they have now just lent an incredible amount of credibility to that. If we have been arguing for many times, stop thinking of yourselves as a private broadcaster that needs to squeeze every penny out of your intellectual property. Start thinking of yourselves as a public utility that's here for everybody's mm -hmm. common good. And they said, you're a bunch of nerds. We don't even have to have this conversation. The irony that this is the issue with, with which really, like, I don't think it's too much to say. It's, it's, it, this is a big issue for Rosemary Barton's future there. Mm. It's a big issue for the actual organization's future. And I know from uh, journalists uh, who, who took it upon themselves to contact me that the entire newsroom is up in arms about this. People are baffled by management's decision making in this. I mean, if the conservatives wanted to dismantle the CBC, I don't, I, this, this may be, you know, another straw on the camel's back, but I think they were well past the point of having those feelings anyway. So, you know, uh, a little bit of like wish fulfillment, but I don't know that it, it that it really changes anything. Anybody who thought the CBC should go doesn't think it meaningfully more after seeing this, though it certainly didn't help their case either way. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity and they are doing cutting edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Ryan Merkley, we sometimes use this show as a way of uh, uh, flagging, annotating, denoting, 
noting duly that which mm. uh, might otherwise go overlooked. Do you have something to share with everyone today? I do have a thing that I would duly note. I, I read a piece in the uh, coming out of the uh, National Post yesterday, I think actually broken by the logic, uh, talking about the Bank of Canada exploring digital currency and, you know, building its own Bitcoin, so to speak. You know, it was a piece about an internal presentation that reviewed the pros and cons of what would it look like for the Bank of Canada to say, enough with this money thing, we're going to invent our own digital currency. And I, uh, it's definitely a thing that is on trend with Facebook launching their own cryptocurrency called Libra that hasn't had a really great week with uh, a whole pile of uh, potential backers, banks and credit card companies backing out of it. But it's a thing I think to keep an eye on. And the, the reason that it uh, I noted it and that it flagged it for me is that it's interesting that the Bank of Canada thinks we should have our own digital currency. That's an interesting one. But what was more interesting to me was the things that they weren't asking questions about. So what does it mean to live in a state where all of your transactions can be tracked? All of them. And the last time we sat in the studio and talked together, we talked about sidewalk labs and questions about surveillance. Uh, and there's very little that reveals more about what a person does, but how they choose to spend their money. A cryptocurrency that was completely trackable and never not trackable is a really interesting public discussion for us to have. Do we want that? Uh, and the and the other side of that that I also think is really really important is when you move away from cash, uh, from from held currency, uh, you also exclude a lot of people from the economy. Not everybody can get a credit card. Not everybody has a bank account. And so the untracked is also the unwelcome in this economy. And I think that's a thing we should really be concerned about. There's a trend in San Francisco where I go for work quite regularly to go into stores and have them say, we, we don't accept cash. What that actually means is poor people can't shop here. Right because they don't have a credit card, because they can't get a bank account and they don't have a debit card. And I think that's a really insidious way of excluding people from the economy. And so I would have liked to have seen the presentation that the Bank of Canada received at least enumerate those two issues. But I duly note it because I think people should be paying attention to the ways that that affects our everyday lives and surveillance, and also who gets excluded from our economy if we move to fully digital. Duly noted. I have one. What's yours? You know, when you want something to come down from the internet, uh, a copyright infringement notice is one legal threat you can send, but a libel notice is another, a cease and desist. And uh, we got one. We got another one. We get them from time to time. We got a cease and desist here at Canada Land from the Buffalo Chronicle. I don't know if you've been following the saga of the Buffalo Chronicle, but Canada Land was the first, I believe, to report that Buffalo Chronicle a one-man, as far as we know, outfit out of uh, out of Buffalo at an address that does not exist, and that man being Matthew Ricciazzi, is a fake news site. We first, back in March, had a story that this is not a legitimate news organization, and the reason why we take an interest in Buffalo Chronicle is that it has been spreading all sorts of completely unsourced, unverified, and at times completely untrue things about Canadian politics. They were active in spreading some stuff during the SNC-Lavalin scandal. We reported on them again recently um, in terms of them trying to spread these rumors about uh, Justin Trudeau uh, and his time at uh, the private school. Well, apparently there was some cover-up over a sex scandal. There's no reason to believe that that's true at all. We've been reporting on that and talking about it, and Justin Ling's been writing about it for our website. And that led to a demand sent to us, a demand that we remove the paragraph from any print copies of your publication... Yeah, okay. You should write them back and tell them that you have destroyed all print copies. 
we'll meet you halfway. We've destroyed all the print copies of our work. None are available for anyone to ever read again. And in the event that you are unable to do so, destroy such defamatory content in its entirety and notify all writers and editors involved in the production of the defamatory content that the Buffalo Chronicle is not, in fact, fake news. And this is this is you recanting right now, right? I'm about to no. Uh, <laughs> instead, uh, no. We 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 uh, we stand by our story. I think that as a as a matter of of policy, we will read any cease and desist or libel notice very carefully. We will look at our work and see if we've gotten anything wrong. And then if we determine that the uh, that the cease and desist has no substance to it whatsoever, I will let the world know that somebody is trying to get us to shut up and remove uh, content. And we have a wonderful lawyer. And I just want to read a passage uh, from the letter he sent back. Uh, the opinions expressed in the Canada Land article are presented with the facts upon which those opinions are based. More specifically, the article sets out the various steps that Canada Land took in an effort to verify statements made by the Buffalo Chronicle. In this way, readers are provided with the basis upon which Canada Land bases its opinion that certain claims related to the Buffalo Chronicle stories are, quote unquote, bullshit. We stand by. <laughs> we stand by. Uh, that opinion that the, the Buffalo Chronicle is bullshit, and we are prepared to uh, to prove that it is if uh, if we must, as we did in the original reporting. Uh, back to our lawyer's letter. In the end, a reader can judge for her or himself whether this conclusion has merit. Duly noted. Ryan, we uh, we like to provide a public service to our listeners here, uh, hmm. some of whom may not have the time that it takes to absorb all of the insights made available by Peter Mansbridge on his wonderful uh, daily podcast, The Bridge. This is like, this guy is just giving it away. Mm -hmm. There's no ads on the show. Uh, he, he, just, he just doesn't want us to have to go to the polls without some Peter Mansbridge analysis every day. Um, but there's a lot of it. There's a lot of it. And, <laughs> and that's why we bring to you The Bridge Abridged. All right, the haunting beat of the mailbag music. A couple of letters here. I just love her last line. I've enjoyed every episode and often listened more than once. I plan on listening to them all throughout the day on Sunday before casting my vote on Monday. All? going to listen to them all? <laughs> There's like 30 of them by Sunday. You're going to listen to them all? My gosh, Lori. That's dedication. Um, you hear that phone ringing in the background? Uh, that's my son, Will. The University of Toronto. And uh, I'm just going to let it ring out, and I will call him there. He's hung up. He's probably scored another great essay, Mark. If you're wondering, hey, why didn't you just edit that out? Well, I, I can't, because I do this all by myself most nights if Will's not here, and I don't know how to edit. So that's why I ramble on and on. Um. Okay, let me try this again. If the results are as close as predicted, this sounds like it's obviously important. Can you hold on a second, everybody? Hi there, I'm just recording the podcast. Um, oh, shit, sorry. 
Ryan, the last thing I want to talk with you about, this is a, a, a Toronto news story, but actually there was a Vancouver version of this that played mm-hmm. out earlier. Why don't I just read to you from BlogTO? Not, not a lot of media have, have picked this up, uh, but BlogTO had an article about it. And um, here's what they wrote. More than 500 members of the Toronto writing community have signed a petition against the Toronto Public Library. The group behind the burgeoning petition, spearheaded by Toronto area authors Alicia Elliott, Catherine Hernandez, and Carrie-Anne Leung, are calling the TPL out for hosting an event featuring notoriously transphobic, anti-sex worker, and Twitter blacklisted feminist current founder and blogger Megan Murphy. The Toronto Public Library has responded. They said, we've carefully reviewed the rental request and it doesn't violate the policy based on its stated purpose. The event organizers are also contractually obligated not to violate the policy. As always, we will take action right away if the event violates our policy or the law. I feel like, Ryan, more context is needed for people to understand what the heck is going on here. Mm-hmm. Megan Murphy will be known to some but not all of our listeners. She considers herself a radical feminist, but she's a controversial radical feminist because her concept of feminism does exclude trans women. Yes. I think it's a fair way to summarize her her position to say that she believes that women's rights, and by women she means cisgender women, women who are assigned that gender at birth, that's what she thinks a real woman is, quote-unquote. Women's rights, uh, Megan Murphy believes, are compromised when trans women are considered women and allowed entrance into women's spaces like women's shelters. And she argues that, you know, women's shelters were a hard-won thing by the feminist movement. They need to be safe spaces from male... And, and male violence and for men. She opposes Bill C-16 on that basis. She has said that, hey, if trans women need their own shelters, they should go and open trans women shelters and they shouldn't come to quote unquote real women shelters. I think that is just a plainly stated summary of her position. And it's, I think, an atrocious position. I think that my personal opinion is, is that it, uh, it is a bigoted position. And I think that it's also just uh a uh, a position based on a, a, an unfounded fear. I don't know what data there is to support the idea that trans women are some kind of a threat in women's spaces. But that is her that is her opinion. That is her position. That's the context on Megan Murphy. The context on this particular incident, as as played out in Vancouver earlier, Megan Murphy has this event coming up at the Toronto Public Library. It is worth noting here she was not invited by the Toronto Public Library. They they no. they do curated speeches where they they have a lot of editorial discretion. Very few people get that privilege to be asked to come and speak. The Toronto Public Library has a lot of resources that anyone in the public can make use of. Yeah. And one of those resources is you, you you can go and rent space to have mm-hmm. an event. And this is a ticketed event that Megan Murphy, or I don't know, somebody on her behalf, it's kind of unclear, uh, has, has made use of that resource. Mm-hmm. And on that basis, these writers are, are boycotting the Toronto Public Library, and they're, they've said they're, they're not going to have their events there anymore. I want to proceed carefully, not really because I'm afraid of getting dragged for saying the wrong thing. That happens anyhow all the time. But because we're talking about people who aren't here, both both women and trans women, and that's not ideal. Um, but we talk about a lot of topics every episode here, so that's just the way it is this episode. You do uh, have some expertise and, and, and point of view when it comes to libraries and the commons, and your, your work, I think, has oriented you with that. I wonder what you think about the Toronto Public Library's responsibilities and role and and just the notion of writers boycotting the, the Toronto Public Library because of this. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you acknowledging the uh, the dis- 
discrepancy in the room that, uh, you know, two white men, uh, you know, my pronouns are he, him. This principle of nothing about us without us, I think, is important uh, in these conversations. And I think that's maybe one of the things that we're facing here is, you know, this question of are these legitimate concerns to raise? I mean, everybody has come around to the idea about racism. Everyone has come around to the idea around discrimination against sexual orientation. And now we're having this conversation about uh, people who are trans or identify as trans. And I think this isn't the library's first time around the block dealing with objectionable speakers in their house. They had some Nazis before. They had some Nazis before. And the Toronto Public Library uh, has a policy. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I have the policy in front of me, um, but it's quoted in the change.org position. But their policy is pretty clear that it says, you know, that they don't allow a booking when uh, use by any individual or group will be for a purpose that is likely to promote or would have the effect of promoting discrimination, uh, contempt, or hatred for any group or person on the basis of. And then they make the whole list of all the things. Including gender identification. So it would be reasonable to ask, what event are these folks hosting that somehow threads the needle of being in compliance with this policy, given the speaker? Mm Mm-hmm. And so on its face, it looks an awful lot like you have somebody who has a bunch of stated views that are in contravention of the policy and the rental agreement. I, I think it is totally legitimate for people to be asking this question, why is this okay? I think that question is legitimate. I think it would be legitimate for the Toronto Public Library to say there is a very good chance that this person, I think that the, that the policy leaves room for that. If, the, if there's a chance this person is going to say discriminatory things or use the, use this resource for discriminatory mm-hmm. purposes, uh, I think that they could, they could ban Megan Murphy and, and do so within their policy. I think they could, but I, I, I've known a lot of librarians and they are, they are serious people about libraries, <laughs> and they are mm-hmm. thorough, thoughtful, intelligent people. Mm-hmm. And libraries as public resources and public spaces, I, I can't imagine that they took this position without a lot of thought. And they have principles about access. You know, that this is, mm-hmm. th- these are, it's for everybody, right? I think that there are some certain distinctions here that might sound like splitting hairs, but they're important. I had no problem when Twitter banned Megan Murphy. It's a private website. They can, you know, nobody has a right to a Twitter account. I would not have any problem with people boycotting the Toronto Public Library. I would fully understand that if out of all the different speakers they could invite, they went and they invited Megan Murphy. I have a little bit of a problem with the idea that Megan Murphy should be banned, I guess, for life from public library resources because of her statements. I would not have that problem if she were like an outright Nazi. And I think that here's there's the distinction. Like, I I understand the point of view that Megan Murphy's position is de facto discriminatory. But her reasoning and logic such as it is, is that her rights are somehow being trampled or in danger by Bill C-16 and by this designation of uh, trans women as being women mm-hmm. like any other w- with access to, to resources uh, as such. I disagree uh, vehemently with that opinion, but I do recognize it as an opinion. And I, I, I don't know that it kind of hits that threshold of like, this is a, a uh, this is hate speech. I, I don't know that we get there. And I guess I just feel like to deny somebody library resources is a tough thing for me to get okay with. It's just very close to like, you know, she doesn't have a, 
a right to all these different forums, like like say this podcast, which many people have said you should have her on. I'm never going to have her on. Mm. I don't think that's. I'm not going to debate the humanity of trans people. But we have tree stumps in public parks where people who can't get a forum anywhere else are allowed to stand and say stupid things. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that the Toronto Public Library is that far away from that tree stump. You know, it wasn't that long ago that we had this exact same debate going on about whether or not someone's gay marriage impinged upon someone's straight marriage. And this idea that, well, if I allow this, it diminishes the value of my whatever. Um, And I feel like we've rightly moved past that. When I think of the library, today's libraries are not bookshelves. Um, They are community centers based around knowledge as opposed to community centers based around physical activity. And they are without question one of the number one places for underprivileged communities, new Canadians, and the safe place where you can go be warm and look for a job or take care of your kids for an hour or, you know, meet with your community. And I think it sends a pretty strong signal when you allow you know, these kinds of hostile views to happen, which is the whole reason the library wrote the policy in the first place. So again, I don't know what the event's about. I know what that person is about. I hear you. But I, I have I, a pretty hard time. Ima- you know, I imagine that person walking past the sign promoting that event, maybe ducking their head in. And what did you just walk into? And do we want that in our house? And like the library is our house. I can accept that it should be a safe place for all kinds of different people to do all sorts of things. But I, I absolutely feel it has to be a place where there's going to be lots of stuff being discussed yeah. that I don't like. There are going to be people doing research towards ends that I don't like. There's going to be people having conversations. There's going to be people making, making podcasts in libraries saying things that I don't like. But I'm just hung up on the theoretical concern of a library. Like how involved with the content of what happens in a library, do you want librarians and library system? And- this is why the library wrote the policy, and it's why they went through this. I mean, they had to go through this in real time when there was it was a event with Nazis. Now they're putting that into practice, and I think they're feeling the pain of, like, how do we say yes or no when it remains controversial? So I say, like, I think it's a great thing that a bunch of authors came forward and said, we don't feel comfortable in this house yeah. if you let these people in the house. I think yeah. that is absolutely legitimate protest. I think I commend them for doing it. Some of them have like given up their book launches at other libraries as a result of this. I think I think good for them for doing that. And not because I think they should not like the library, but because they're trying to exert some power to force the conversation. There's also a second piece underneath that, which is it may not just be straight protest. It may also be that those people don't feel safe. Because in an organization that allows those other kinds of speech to take place in their building sends a message to people who feel marginalized or excluded that you're not welcome here. You're, you're swaying me to, to a certain degree. I mean, I think that, like, I try not to be an ideologue because I don't like to let ideology become more important than people. I, I feel like my I, my idealism here is that I hope that – I don't really know what's in Megan Murphy's heart, but I hope that some of the people who see things her way – can be swayed out of it through reason. I, I can understand people being very trepidatious about trans women and women's shelters. I can understand people um, having that prejudice, and I can envision them being convinced otherwise. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel like that that is a process that could take place if you actually have the conversation to go through, like, well, let's look at, has this actually been a problem? Sure. And, you know, I feel like that has to be given space for that process yep. to work itself out. Right. Really, to get people to understand 
is a process. But too too many of those conversations are put up as like, let's have a debate between this trans person and Megan, and it comes across as this trans person now needs to justify their existence. You know, my view may be different than others, but hate speech is the floor, is the basic human minimum. Because I, I think there's a higher order hope that I would have for my libraries and for my community centers and for our public spaces, which is about not just being, we don't allow people to be hateful here, but that we actually actively try to create inclusive spaces that welcome people in, that address the fact that people feel marginalized and excluded. And so to that degree, the message that is sent by having somebody who is known to be hateful to a particular group of people getting to use our public spaces, which are special places, to tell those stories is maybe, maybe, maybe not it meets the bar on hate speech, but it definitely doesn't meet my bar on inclusion. Ryan Merkley. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. That's your Canada Land Shortcuts for today. Everybody, you can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Ryan, where can people find you? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at Ryan Merkley. Our website is canadalandshow.com, where you could find this week's episode of Commons. The new season is Dynasties, the families that run Canada. And this week's episode... It's about the Ford family. Check it out. I thought I knew. I didn't know. Not everything. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb and David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. Reminder once again, Canada Land election night viewing party at the Monarch Tavern in Little Italy in Toronto, Monday the 21st, 7.30 p.m. It's a free event. If you like what we do, if you like our podcasts, if you like our news reporting, if uh, this is something that you want to support, you can do that at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Hope you do. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.